um, when you get to 40, you can start saying things like, I remember when, um, or back in my teenage years, things like that. Uh, I remember my favorite comedian. His name is Steve Martin. Back in the 80s and 90s, when I was kind of 20s, um, he made a series of films that were really, really funny. And he has one of those great abilities to say something hilarious with a deadpan face so that everyone around him is in stitches of laughter. And yet he's still, but he looks very, very sober of face. And last year, I learned something quite unique. Steve Martin is not just a hilarious comedian. He's also a brilliant musician. He's a brilliant musician. He's a very talented man. He plays the banjo like nothing else. Just Google Steve Martin banjo, and you'll see him on a few talk shows. He is quite something. But I watched this clip. I don't know how I got onto it. That was it. I was prevaricating because I didn't want to write my message for Sunday. And so as normal, I find something else to do until the panic sets in, and then I start writing, normally on a Friday or a Thursday. But I googled Steve Martin for some reason, and I found, let me look it up, Steve Martin and the Steep Mountain Rangers. And that's his band of kind of hillbillies with their banjos and kind of sawgrass getting down on Saturday Night Live. And they had sung this wonderful song that is kind of profound and silly at the same time. The song is, Why Atheists Ain't Got No Songs. Why atheists ain't got no songs? And then he goes through different religions and say, well, Christians, they have this, and uh, Jewish people, they have this, and, and so on. But atheists, they just sing the blues. One of the uh, verses is this. It's very profound. For atheists, there's no good news. They'll never sing a song of faith. In their songs, they have a rule. The he is always lowercase. And so the song continues. It strikes me when we come to uh, Christmas, when we come to Advent, it begins today, I believe. Um, when it comes to Christmas, there is a lot of singing that happens in our culture. There is more music than normally in the year. As you go into the Ashley Center, there'll be Christmas songs. You, you enjoy them for about a day, and then they just get played repetitively for about three weeks. But there's a lot of music and a lot of singing that happens at Christmas. And Christians, more than anybody else, have a reason to sing. And in this famous passage, beginning at verse 46, it's called the Magnificat, Mary teaches us how to sing. And she teaches us why we should sing. There is an absolute ton that uh, I wrote in my study, and I've binned half of it. But this is a really laden passage that I wanted to spend just 25 minutes or so uh, looking at. She's singing about Mary. She's singing about the Christmas message. One of the messages that I binned on the cutting room floor is how it fascinates me. Last week, look down please, Luke 1 and uh, verse 30. Do you remember how the angel Gabriel came to Mary and said, you're highly favored. This is all part of the uh, inclusive package. You know. This is, the Bobby, this is the John Tyndall height, or the Bobby Warrenberg height. <laughs> she just couldn't see. It's the cheap seats on the front row. Um, the angel Gabriel came to Mary and said, you're going to have a child, and you're, he's going to be the savior of the world. And Mary kind of understood it, but, but she didn't. And uh, then the angel said, don't be afraid. I'm only an angel. And she just about was not afraid. And she didn't quite get it, but she said last week, verse 37, behold, I am the servant 
of the Lord. Let it, me, let it be to me according to your word. Then she went to see Elizabeth. That's this little passage, verse 39 to 45. And it fascinates me. This is another message for another year. How it's when she comes together in community that the penny really drops. There is not joy in Mary's heart where we left it last week, verse 37, verse 38. She entrusts herself to God. She knows that she's going to be on the, on the lip of poverty, like we said last week. She is willing to be obedient to her Father and her God, and yet she doesn't quite get it, but when she goes to Elizabeth, verses 39 to 45, then the penny drops and she starts to sing, verse 46, these wonderful and these famous words, verse 46, verse 47, my soul magnifies the Lord. You need to be in community to understand the truth of God. I think that's what that little passage seeks. But back to today's message. This passage has something to say to us if we're Protestants. Protestants have a very interesting relationship with Mary. We don't honor her as we should. Hear me carefully. Look at what uh, Elizabeth says to Mary, verse 42. She says, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Mary, you're quite something. We should honor you. People are going to know your story for all the generations ahead. We need to honor Mary as Protestants. However, if you were raised up in a Catholic school, you need to pay attention to verses 46 to 48. You need to bear in mind that Mary says, verse 47, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. What does that mean? It means that Mary's not perfect. Perfect people don't need a Savior. And here's Mary saying, verse 47, I'm rejoicing in what's going to happen, what God's going to do through me in three months' time. I don't understand what's going to happen in 30 years' time quite yet, not quite fully at Calvary and at the cross, but I'm going to rejoice in what's going to happen through my womb. I'm going to rejoice in what God is doing. But I need a saviour too, says Mary. So she's not perfect. She's not to be worshipped. Protestants and Catholics, we need to listen to the Magnificat, perhaps in a new way, because it teaches us how to sing. Let's listen in. What does Mary sing about? She sings about three things, not just because I'm a preacher, but she sings about three things. She sings about God's nature. She sings about God's purposes. She sings about God's grace. Number one, she sings about God's nature. This is the first thing she gets to, eyes down. Look at what she's singing about in verses 46 and 47. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humblest state of his servant. He's mighty, verse 49. He's merciful, verse 50. He's holy as well, verse 49. When we come to Christmas, we talk about Christmas in a kind of a, a humanistic way. We imagine, don't we, in our mind's eye, or if it's in our family, we listen to John Denver for about four months of the year and his Christmas songs. I kid you not, our kids love it. Chestnuts roasting on an open fire, and Jack Frost, whoever he is, he, he feels like he's in here today, actually, but he's nipping at your nose. We think humanistically about Christmas. Christmas is about us. We become kind of dewy, don't we? For about two weeks at least, we think that if we just get together, sings John Lennon, Let's give peace a chance, yeah? We treat one another differently for a week or so. We buy gifts for people we don't know. We speak to our, our neighbors for the first time since last Christmas. 
We're optimistic, we're kind of more humanistic, we're very, very sentimental. Mary, as she sings, is not being sentimental. She's not talking about change that's happened in her life for a week or so. Mary is talking about a revolution that's happened within her own spirit. She's saying, verse 47, my soul magnifies the Lord. Something's happened in her heart. My spirit rejoices in God, my saviour. This is not warm. It is not fuzzy. It is not sentimental. It's real change that's happened in Mary's spirit. She understands what God is about to do in her in a physical manifestation of himself in her womb. She doesn't get it all, but the penny has dropped. You know, sometimes there's times in your life where you you go and you really need a Coke. You just need 37 grams of sugar to give you a bit of a boost mid-afternoon. So you put in your pound coin into the, uh, the vending machine, and the penny doesn't drop. You select Coke, and you kind, of get, you kind of curse the machine. And then you resort to the sooty method, which is to whack it. And then hopefully the penny drops, and out comes the Coke, and hopefully a bit of change. God will do whatever is necessary in your life, in my life, for the penny to drop. And in Mary, this transition has happened from verse 37 through to verse 45. What causes her to sing? It's community. It's Elizabeth speaking under the authority and influence of the Holy Spirit to say something very special is going to happen in your womb and in your life. And then Mary's heart is lifted, it's taken up with the character and purposes of God and she starts to sing. Verse 49, here's the first thing, there are three. She sings about God's mighty character. Verse 49, He is mighty, who has done great things for me. She has just been told she's going to give birth to the Son of God. The Most High is going to become the Most Low, is going to be born in her womb. She doesn't get it all, but she gets enough for her heart to be lifted above the fact that her husband will probably leave her. Her fiancé will probably leave her, rather. We haven't got to the part yet when the angel arrives, so don't know the end from the beginning yet. But yet, facing poverty without the welfare state, facing all the uncertainty of her future, in the midst of that, she knows enough of God's purposes to sing this wonderful song about the mighty deeds. She understands enough to know that God, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, the one to whom the universe is a speck, he is about to become a speck in her womb. I always think the baby was just kind of born, you know, a full-size baby in Mary's womb. But no, the one to whom the universe is a speck, he became a speck, a chromosome that split and then multiplied and so on. All the cells were perfectly knit together in Mary's womb. And Mary knows enough of this to marvel at God's mighty, awesome nature. She's glorying in who God is. In the fact that the holy, omnipotent, almighty God is going to be real and come into her womb. Number one, God's mightiness. Secondly, verse 49, his holiness. His holiness. He is a holy God. I know that he's holy. She hasn't got a PhD in theology, but God has revealed his holy nature to her. She would know some of the scriptures. She would have been taught from her mother's knee. 
and she knows something of the purpose and nature and character of God, so that her heart is rejoicing. Our God is a holy God. He is uh, acidic to everything sinful and against his morally pure nature, not like me. The radio was on this week. I was flicking the Epsom Guardian. And you know when you kind of half hear a story that's on the radio? The news was on. I'm glad the kids weren't in the room. And it was telling a shocking story that's hit the headlines this week. And most of it kind of went in and went out. And then I thought, you know what I've just heard, because I was reading at the same time, that that's come in through to my mind, through my ears, that's shocking. It didn't make me stop the paper. It took a few seconds for the penny to drop. God is never like that. God is not anesthetized to bad things happening, to sinful actions, to sinful thoughts, like I am, like you are. He's acidic towards everything unholy, towards everything that's against his morally pure nature. And yet Mary can see his mightiness, and also she's aware of his holiness. I've said already, she doesn't understand yet the cross. She doesn't understand yet fully what will happen in 30 years' time. And yet she knows that God is mighty and he's holy. She doesn't know that the child that will grow and be knitted carefully together in her, in her womb, that he'll be the saviour of the world. doesn't know that in full, but she knows enough that she needs a saviour and that he's mighty and that he's holy. She knows that. So this baby in her womb, well, he's the mighty one. He's going to be the holy one. Thirdly, she's singing about the fact that he's the merciful one. The merciful one. God is not far off. God in Jesus has come near. He's the merciful one. Do you remember uh, earlier in the story, it was last week, it says, back in verse 35, Gabriel says to, to Mary that the Holy Spirit will overshadow you and you will conceive. And that holy thing you conceive will be the Son of God. That means, that means the Almighty God, as we've thought already, who spoke the stars into space, who sustains them with the word of his authority and power, who knows the hairs on your head, this, this mighty God, this holy God, well, he's also a merciful God because he's coming near. He's not far off. He's not a divine watchmaker who sets the world going and then disappears. He's a God who's merciful and who's coming close to Mary and to humanity. Think about this, because God is holy, he must do something. He must do something. Because he's merciful, he wants to do something. And because he's mighty, he can do something. If God was far off and didn't care, then he would be distant. It's not the God of the Bible. If God was just merciful but, but impotent, he wouldn't be able to help or care. But Mary knows enough of God's character that it causes her heart to sing because she knows God's mightiness, his holiness, but also his mercifulness, that he's drawn near for the sake of all humanity. And that begins in her womb. That's why she can sing. She's singing about God's nature. Secondarily, she's singing about his purposes. Verse 51. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. 
He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He's brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said. We've thought about this over the last few weeks. Every other system of belief is private. Every other system of belief is internal. It's not rooted in history. Do you remember back in Luke 1, verses 1 to 4? Luke can say, I've spoken to the eyewitnesses. They saw what happened. I've researched it carefully, and here's my orderly account. Christianity is a historically rooted, publicly known, historically recorded religion. It's not just an internal feeling. You can go and see the... uh, places where Paul walked, the places where Jesus fished, if you like. And Mary is singing about this truth and about this reality. This is what God has done in history. He's brought down rulers. He's made promises and he's kept them. Verse 55, even as he promised to Abraham, even as he promised to our fathers, Mary is singing remembering God's nature, but also his his promises. Now think about when she was singing, not just what she was singing, when. These promises that she is being uh, called to remember by the Holy Spirit who's causing her to sing, these promises were made 2,000 years ago. There's not been a prophet in Israel for 400 years. Years, there's been silence. That one sheet of paper in between your Old and New Testament that I think you should rip out because it's not part of the Bible. 400 years of silence. The people of which Mary is a part, God's people, are oppressed. They're longing for liberation but don't have any of it. They're under the heel of Rome. God's promises look very, very flimsy. And yet, she's singing. Yet she's remembering God's promises to Abraham, whom God illuminated the night sky to say, count the stars, go ahead. That's how many children are going to be in your family. That's how many sons and daughters you will have. Count the sand on the seashore. That's how many are going to be in the family of faith. And Mary remembers that, and it causes her heart to sing. God is good. Here's his nature. God's promises are certain and secure. One of the signs that you're a Christian is that you start to sing as Mary did. One of the signs that you're a Christian is that you start to reflect on the things that Mary reflected. You you become consumed with God's goodness. You know his nature more and more. You're, You're certain about his promises even if you don't feel them because they're objectively true. So let me ask you at this time of year when we sing along, and there's lots more music in church perhaps than there normally is. To what degree is your heart singing like Mary sang? And I don't just mean Sundays. I mean, when you open the Bible, is your heart taken up with the character and nature and purposes of God? Are you excited about what God is doing in the world? Are you prayerfully concerned for the things that are happening in God's world? Are you relying on his nature Do you know his mighty deeds, his holy nature, the fact that he sent a saviour? One of the signs that you're a Christian is that you sing songs in a different way. Because you're not singing just from your lips. 
you're singing from your heart. You're not just singing, you're actually worshipping. It's one of the signs that you're a Christian. You sing like Mary did. She's not just singing words to a song. She's singing a hymn about a saviour whom she knows and whom she needs. And so do you and I. That causes us to sing worshipfully with hearts that are full. Martin's in front of me. I can't go without a Welsh example either. The Welsh sure can sing. There's nothing quite like the Millennium Stadium with the roof shut. Imagine, though, if people are in there not just to watch a game of rugby, but if it's full of Christians. One of the things Johnny and I have sought to do at Emmanuel Epsom is to say, we want to hear people sing. So let's get the volume a bit lower so we can hear you sing. Because Christians need to sing. And if you've forgotten how to sing, Mary teaches us how to sing by meditating on the character, purposes, attributes, and promises of God. So we need to focus on his nature, be consumed by his purposes and promises. Thirdly, we need to understand and sing about his grace. It's there in verse 53. Mary says of God, he fills the hungry, but he sends the rich away empty. Is there still a Waterstones in Epsom? I think there is. If you go to Waterstones, I think that's called a bookshop, you know those physical things? Or if you go to Amazon and buy those electrical things. If you go and look at the self-help books, they'll say this. The reason you're not fulfilling your potential is because you haven't unlocked the power inside yourself. We started to watch a film last night about happiness. A guy's on a search for happiness. And the solution for happiness is within. Every self-help book, every Eastern religion will say, the reason you are not happy, the reason you've not uh, found fulfillment yet is because you've not tapped into your inner potential. The Bible says none of that will work. You have not got the resources to save yourself. The answer for true happiness and fulfillment is not found within, it's found from without. And here's Mary saying and describing how God works. It's a, it's a religion that is a personal relationship with our Father and our God. And she's celebrating his grace. But the way that God works, his economy, turns every self-help book on its head. This is how God works, verse 53. If you are hungry, he will fill you. If you are rich, you will be sent away empty. What does that mean? We're going to see this again and again in Luke's Gospel, that God takes the way the world works and turns it on its head. Ruth understands that sign. God turns it on its head. This is how the world works, isn't it? If you work hard enough, you will find happiness and success. If you work hard enough, you'll find happiness and success. You can move postcodes to the other side of the tracks on the way up to the downs, and you'll get away from the people who are in need, who are poor, who are socially challenged, who are not middle class, because we all want to be middle class. But God takes the things that are not and makes them to be things that are. He takes those that are poor and makes them actually full. Those that are hungry and needy, he fills them up. Those who are rich and uh, secure and satisfied in their own resources, he brings them low. It's the way God works. It's, it's a divine 
reversal that we'll see again and again in Luke's Gospel. Think about the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who weep, for actually in the future you shall laugh. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who are last, for you will be first. God takes the way of the world and turns it on its head. And Mary is saying, you want to know what a Christian community looks like? It will always be seen with a concern for the poor. The poor of spirit, the physically poor, those of the underclasses. Think of it this way, revivals never happen in the upper classes. They always begin in the poor. Why is that? Because the poor recognize their need. Those who are poor, physically poor as well as spiritually poor, they are not afraid to say that they are broken, sinful people. Those who are wealthy and affluent often are. The poor aren't afraid to believe in supernatural things. Those who are upper class often are, and middle class and western too. And here is Luke saying, you know what? The way God works is that he comes to those who are poor in spirit. Whether you are rich and you come to your senses in God's grace, or whether you are poor and God draws you to himself, this is the way God works. And this is why Christians traditionally work amongst the poor people, those who are in need. I was in the kitchen with Joe this week, and uh, I think this is one of the greatest challenges we face as a church here at Emmanuel Epsom. We live in an area, Epsom and Yule, you know it better than I do, I'm sure, where there is great affluence. One side of the railway line, crudely speaking, is very different from the other one. Without God's help, we will fail, because the greatest disease of the modern world is probably affluenza, thinking that if you've got enough in this world, you're okay, that all your needs can be met here in this life, that the resources are within. That's why there are meters of self-help books and very few copies of the Bible in Waterstones. And there I was around the table, and I said to Joe, there is a big part of my heart that would love to have a church full of middle-class people who have all their ducks in a row, who don't have too many problems, who look good, who can sing in tune. I would love to be pastor of a church like that. And that's because I have a limited understanding of God's heart. Look at this, verse 54. He has helped Israel, his servant. Sorry, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. He has spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And backing up to verse 53, he has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. God needs to work on my heart again and again. So that those who are marginalized, those who are poor, those who are needy should be welcome into my home, into your home, and into this church. It will be costly on every level. It will be risky, so we need to be wise. But we must not become a church that is only concerned with people who are nice, who are only concerned with those who are uh, more affluent, and those who are hard to love, those who are difficult, those who are vulnerable, are not on our radar. For that to happen, we need to understand verse 53. It's the gospel right there. God is concerned with those who are poor of spirit, 
But those who are affluent, those who think they're okay, those who are haughty, he will bring low. This is the reality of Christianity. But the gospel says this. The gospel says that if you turn to Christ and you're spiritually poor, you will become rich. Now that statement could be misheard, so let me be clear. Spiritually rich. All your needs will be met in Jesus. The deep longings of your heart will be met in Jesus. It's not talking about uh, financial security, but it's talking about eternal security that money can't buy. Your heart's deepest longings will be met in Jesus. Your soul will be fed. Rob read from Isaiah. It's talking about this, the thirst that you have in your heart for intimacy and knowing your creator, knowing true approval, to be known and loved, our greatest longing. Only is that possible in Jesus. And that's why this song is so important, because Mary teaches us how to sing. She reminds us at the first Christmas of the gospel, before it's Jesus has even gone to the cross outside a city wall at Calvary. So how do you sing? When you sing, do you sing about God's sufficiency, his adequacy? Do you remind yourself of his purposes? Do you remind yourself of his character? Do you remind yourself of his great and precious promises in Jesus? Do you center everything about, around him as you sing? Did you notice the shape of the passage to close? Verse 47 and verse 48. The focus begins with Mary. My soul and my spirit. And then the focus quickly goes to Jesus and to God. He has looked on me. He who is mighty. His holy name. His mercy. He has shown the strength of his arm. He has brought the mighty down from their throne. He has exalted those of humble estate. Mary's taught us how to sing. Let's pray together. Father, I pray as a church you would help each one of us to focus more on you than on ourselves. And please teach us again and again as we come to the season of Advent how to sing, how to sing your praises, how to meditate on your character, and how to sing your greatness and your goodness literally to other people as well. Help us not to be sentimental. Help us not to be humanistic. Help us to be God-centered people who enjoy singing your praises at this season, just like every other day of the year, I pray. Amen.